So I was born in 1967, which means that my first few years were lived within probably one of the most tumultuous political times our nation has ever known. But it also means that one of my first memories of watching the news at night was when the newscasters, and no one under the age of 50 will remember this, but would actually report on the death toll that came out of Vietnam that particular day. Any of you remember this? And I remember one particular evening watching this when the, when the newscaster was going through the numbers where they juxtaposed the, the, the report uh, with some fighting going on in the streets of what I assume was uh, Saigon. And of course, it was that shaky kind of grainy military film that I remember. But I remember looking off in the distance and seeing uh, someone in the midst of the fighting going down after getting shot. And for whatever reason, my mind just hung on to that moment of being like, um... Someone just died right there before my very eyes. I wonder if you can remember the first time uh, that death struck you. And you realize that violent death uh, sort of gets in you. It's jarring. It's disturbing in that regard. But what do you do when suddenly you begin to realize that the Bible seems to have the same kind of violence in it? You know, we, we, we want to talk about a problem this morning that I tried to introduce to us last week that we oftentimes just gloss over because of its familiarity. But get this straight. God comes down and kills every firstborn Egyptian male. And as if that weren't enough, he warns the Israelites, his own people, that the same fate will befall them if they don't slaughter an innocent little baby lamb and smear the blood over their doors. Even further, we find in chapter 12, verse 23, that God is is in cahoots uh, with something called the destroyer. And, and, And of course, even if that's not enough, this whole event, this entire experience came to become the defining ritual of Jewish life, the Passover, which itself would become the central feature of what Christians participate in when they come to the Lord's Supper. So uh, my question is, what's going on with this? (laughs) And as it turns out, we're not the only ones asking this question. There are lots of people who are questioning why there is such violence at the heart of Christianity, not the least of which are guys like Richard Dawkins, who in his, uh, the late Richard Dawkins, who in his book, The God Delusion, says this. He says, I have described atonement, the central doctrine of Christianity, as vicious, sadomasochistic, and repellent. We should also dismiss it as barking mad, but for its ubiquitous familiarity with which it has dulled our objectivity. If God wanted to forgive our sins, why not just forgive them without having himself tortured and executed in payment, thereby, incidentally, condemning remote future generations of Jews to pogroms and persecutions as if they were Christ killers. So it's not just those outside the bounds of Christianity, though, that are taking shots at this doctrine. I was listening to a sermon a number of weeks ago by my good friend Brian Habig, who's in Greenville, South Carolina, where he was talking about the fact that presently the best-selling book in the religion and theology section of Amazon.com is a book that denies that Jesus' death was actually there to appease God's wrath. Richard Rohr's book, uh, uh, The Universal Christ, makes just that claim. In other words, the violence that Jesus suffered on the cross shows us that any God who would conceive of such a, a system has to be immediately suspect. 
But here we have in our story violence that's there. And maybe Dawkins is right. Maybe we are too familiar with this story. It is, it is disturbing on one level to see what happened. And so this morning, I want us to consider what the meaning is of Passover and how we can sort of comprehend why God goes to the lengths that he does to bring his people to himself. Three points this morning. Number one, the history of the lamb, the meaning of the lamb, and then finally the future of the lamb. Let's look at the history of the lamb. Look, the story is fairly simple. We finally come to the 10th of the 10 plagues, the last one, when God sends this unstoppable, uh, indestructible force uh, in the midst of what is without question, the greatest military force ever assembled, and he's going to pass through it like a rock through water. And there's only one thing that's going to protect you from this force, and that's a lamb and his blood spread over your doorposts. It's meekest, mildest of creatures. Somehow you're going to kill it. Uh, you're going to eat it with your family. And this is God's instruction to save yourself. Now, look, in order to wrap our minds around how bizarre this is to both our day and generations past, we have to go a little bit back into the background of Passover. That there's something in the story of Israel thus far that helps us understand it. And it takes place in Genesis chapter 22 with the very first of the people that are called uh, to create the Jewish family, a guy named Abraham. Especially when God takes Abraham after having called him and provided him with a long lost son and then tells him to go and sacrifice him. Listen, chapter 22, verse 2 of Genesis. Take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. (laughs) Suddenly... It looks as if God goes to Abraham, the father of the faithful, and encourages him to engage in a practice, which, by the way, is directly condemned in many other places in the Old Testament, namely child sacrifice. So what is going on here? Well, for me growing up, I remember distinctly reading this story and wondering why it was that Abraham never protested this. I mean, you would think he would have been like, wait, wait, what do you want me to do? But he's the child of the promise. I mean, he's the one that Sarah and I have been waiting for. Like, why do you want me to do this? He says nothing. Instead, he's like, okay, it's off to go kill Isaac. Look, in order to understand this, I want to revisit a topic we came up with a couple of weeks ago. And I promise you we'd return to it because it takes multiple exposures to get it into your head. And it has to do with that culture's significance that they placed on the firstborn son or what theologians and scholars refer to as the right of primogenitor. You you wanted to come to church with a big word that you can impress people at cocktail parties with, so there you go. The right of primogenitor, what is that? It's the right that basically existed among that culture that said this, the oldest son gets all of the wealth of the family. All of the hopes, all the financial peace, everything that's to come is on the oldest son. And I realize that we look at those kind of practices and we condescend to it and roll our eyes. But there's a reason why it was common. Because in that day, the aspirations of your average person was not to succeed as an individual. But it was to see their family succeed. There 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 weren't any categories for me sort of being an individual distinguishing myself. But it was what my family did. And what happened was is if wealth was kind of evenly distributed among all the children, you lost your social status. Why? Because your wealth was dissipated to some extent. 
you looked out for the family. And so you, you kept your family's place in society by giving it all to the oldest son. Like I realize this sounds crazy to our ears, but it's worth mentioning again that it's worth questioning how individualistic our society has gotten. It's worth questioning that, that if we lay all of the pressure of families on individual accomplishments and we only sort of uh, uh, issue praise for people when they've done something as an individual, then it sort of mitigates against what we think about family connections really are. But in that culture, a firstborn son literally held all of the vitality of the family in his hands. It was on him. Now, it's for that reason, follow me with the next step here, that the Bible tells us something very interesting about how his followers should deal with firstborn sons. I mentioned this a couple weeks ago, that in a number of places in these first five books in the Bible, you see God sending this very powerful message where he says, the life of your firstborn son, it belongs to me. It's mine. Look at Exodus 13.1. Consecrate to me all of the firstborn. Whatever is first to open the womb among the people of Israel, both man and beast, is mine, God says. Look, so important was the oldest son in, in, in God's economy. that the, the Jewish people had a ritual tradition where once a year, you would actually have to redeem the life of your firstborn. Once a year. And, and therefore, it was on the head of every single family to pay money so they could buy back their oldest son from God. And if you didn't, then their lives were forfeit if they did not. And look, you can look at this and say, what in the world could this possibly mean? Well, God is saying, I think, almost unmistakably, that there is a debt that hangs over the head of every single family on earth by no other virtue than the fact that you are alive. And so what God was doing was, is he was laying down this, this symbolic structure, building it on the firstborn, to say that your firstborn is liable for the way in which you are living. You're liable for that. And again, like, it's bizarre to our ears, but it was a cultural norm to these people. Now look, one small little side item here, because before you get too bent out of shape, Tim Keller was the first one to introduce me to a body of, of, of research uh, of people that have been talking about this rite of primogenitor to note something very fascinating about the Old Testament, because even though God is speaking into this cultural uh, norm, He's also subverting it over and over and over again. Think about how many times in the Bible it ends up being the younger son who takes the lead rather than the older, right? Uh, you've, got, uh, you've got Abel who actually gets the blessing instead of his brother Cain. Uh, you've got Jacob who gets the blessing instead of Esau. Uh, you've got King David uh, rather than his you know, more impressive older brothers who gets the blessing from God. In other words, yes, God is dealing with this as a form, but he's subverting it along the way. So go back to Abraham for a moment. Imagine for a moment then in that framework that God had come down to Abraham and said, Abraham, I want you to go into the tent and I want you to kill Sarah, your wife. Immediately, Abraham would have said, mm, wait a minute, that can't be the voice of God. I'm having, a, I'm having an hallucination right now, or maybe this is a demon. That can't be the voice. But because, but because of the fact that he didn't protest, the fact that he didn't say anything means he understood that in that moment, God was calling his debt. He's collecting on his debt. 
Isaac was about to die for what Abraham understood were the family's sins. And look, this is the heart, I think, of, of, of Abraham's anguish as he goes up the mountain, as he struggles not just with the fact that he's losing his son, but also with the fact of how is God going to put together this fact that he promised us big promises? How is he going to do that, but at the same time, pay for my debt? See what Abraham is wondering. He's wondering, how can God be both just and the justifier of the people who follow him. Of course, as he's walking up the mountain there in Genesis 22, in verse 7 and 8, you get this, this incredible question that Isaac asks. He's like, Father, I, here's the wood, here's the fire, but where's the lamb? Remember what Abraham says? He looks at him and goes, God will provide a lamb. But you see what he's saying? He's saying, look, I hope for everything that that you will not have to die for my sins. And I believe that God's going to find a way. So so all of that story is in the background, is the history of what's going on here in Passover in Exodus. That leads me to the second question. What then is the meaning of the lamb? The meaning of the lamb. Um, Because I know for a lot of you are thinking to yourself, okay, that doesn't help. Because this still looks so primitive and so weird for a culture to think about something so brutal and so vile. I mean, surely the Bible doesn't expect me to believe that my sin is so bad that like every family's firstborn son is liable for it? That's really what you believe? Y'all, this is the very unnerving truth of the Bible. The answer is yes. And that, I think, is what we're wrestling with. Because there comes a point in your journey with Christianity where you have to realize and come to terms with the fact that God is often, almost always, far more offended by our rebellion against his design in the world than we are. Because he takes it as a double insult. On the one hand, he made you, and therefore he owns you. He has rights over your behavior. So that we can't look at his commands as if they're Helpful suggestions for life or, or God's little instruction booklet. <laughs> we can't look at them that way. They're trampling his commands. And what that means, therefore, is there's no such thing as sin being able to be considered as benign. It's not. I mean, if, if you think about the fact that if a manufacturer makes a machine <laughs> to operate in just such a way, that, then any deviation from that design is going to be destructive to the operation of the machine. It's destructive. It hurts people. And so since there is a God who patterned the design of all human beings, any sin in that regard is is never victimless. It can't be. Violence against God and against the crown of creation, mankind, is destructive. Okay, I realize that you think this might sound like exaggeration, but if we start to really think carefully about the things that we dismiss as sins, I think we'll see what happens. We look at things like being like, well, I mean, it was a, it was a little white lie, but it was told in good faith. Well, maybe. But is it not also possible that in that moment, I denied that person some access to the truth of who I really am? Which means our ability to live on the basis of trust is somehow, somehow eroded. And even worse, it means that that person is now interacting with a me that's not the real me and is therefore at risk of sort of robbing even me of blessing I might have otherwise. 
in a word, it's destructive. Or maybe perhaps we say something like, well, you know, it's just a little cheating here and there on the company expense account. It's not a big deal. Well, maybe. But, but what if every other employee is doing the exact same thing in your company? <laughs> you know, I mean, how much money do we spend as a nation every year on what economists call sin tax? That's the money that companies have to spend internally just to get rid of graft from within. What does that do? It erodes the experience of everyone in their work. In a word, it's destructive. Look, we could go on and on, but see, this is my premise, and this is not an easy one to swallow. But I believe that the violence that we see executed against these lambs, and honestly, eventually against the Lord Jesus himself, is a response by God in kind. It's appropriate. The, the debt created by our violence against humanity, it has to be repaid. Makes you wonder if the primitive people of old, not that they weren't less advanced than us, but they might have been a whole lot saner for what they understood. Now look, you may be wrestling though with Dawkins' question. I still don't get it, Les. Like, why can't God just forgive this? Isn't that the essence of salvation? But if that's all you've got of salvation, then I, you don't really understand Christianity because what we believe is that God cannot forgive unless there's been some kind of payment. Something that honestly, I think you know intuitively yourself. When someone wrongs you, and I mean really wrongs you, there is almost out of thin air created a debt. It hangs there. Sometimes you can feel it. It's palpable in a room between two people. But do you realize there's only two things that you have, two choices you have to deal with this thing in the middle of the room. On the one hand, you can basically make them pay for it. And what you do is you sort of execute some sort of, a, a, a sort of a work against them. You, you move against them. And as they sort of pay it off, then maybe you feel better. The other option is that you can pay it yourself and say, I'll absorb it. So that every time I want to sort of hurt them, I won't. Every time I want to slice up their reputation, I'm not going to. Every time I want to brood on these hateful thoughts about them, I'm going to get it out of my mind. And as we refuse to do that, our anger subsides as well. But this is the point. It is no option not to pay the debt. Someone has to deal with that that's hanging out there. We owe it to God to live a life that he's pleased with, to love our neighbor as ourselves. And as a result, he has every right to call for our firstborn sons. That's what he's saying. You know, we got Abraham, who's oftentimes commended to being the, the father of the faithful. And we oftentimes look at that as if he's this sort of spiritual giant. But that's not the point. No, what Abraham is willing to do is to accept a fact that his debt is heinous. And because it is, God has every right to do this. Faith then becomes, it begins in an admission that you are deeply guilty, but that God will provide a lamb. Now, look, you know how the story goes. Uh, you know, God provides, uh, sort of stays his hand and provides a ram that's stuck in a thicket. And you're reading it and you sort of sigh in relief. But, you know, Abraham is actually still guilty. Uh, you know, Tim Keller says that to get the point of what's really going on with Abraham, you've got to realize two things about our Exodus Passover here. And the first one is this. You realize that Israel was just as liable to lose a son that night as any Egyptian was had nothing to do with them. It certainly wasn't their, their, their moral goodness or their, you know, their, their sort of favored status by God. 
It was only because of the blood. And so Keller says, imagine that there are two Hebrew homes with two different sons. In the first Hebrew home, you have a young man who sits there and is terrified. He's shaking because he can hear the screams in the neighborhood around him. And he looks to his father, trembling with fear. On the other hand, you have a son who's in another home like that. And he looks to his father. He's like, father, what's going on? And his father says, don't worry, this blood's going to cover us. And he goes, you're right. I got it. I'll be fine. But here's the crazy thing. Both of those sons survive the night. And what that means is, is it has nothing to do with how well you ascertain the significance of the blood. As long as you're building your confidence on the blood, the quality of your faith doesn't make any difference. The question is the focus of your faith. What is it braced upon? Whether you hold that thing weakly or whether you hold it confidently, it's still the same blood. The second principle, Keller says, is that the lamb therefore was a substitute. In every single house in Egypt, there was either a dead son or there was a dead lamb. In, in, in the Hebrew households especially, the firstborn son sat at the dinner table and said to himself, the only reason why I'm not dead is because that thing is. There was a substitution. So the meaning of the lamb comes at us because God has to give us a sense of who we really are before him. The history of the lamb, the meaning of the lamb. Finally, we see the future of the lamb. If you scroll forward to Luke chapter 22, verse 7, you see Jesus sitting down with his apostles to eat this very meal. And because he's the one who pulled the meal together, he has to explain the meal in a traditional Jewish Seder. And he stands up and says, what we would expect to hear is normally said at a Seder. When he says, this is the bread of our affliction that our ancestors suffer, suffered so that we could be free. But that's not what he says. He stands up and he says, this is my body. It is the bread of my affliction that's here to give you ultimate freedom. I'm in place of the provider now. There's three things at a Passover. There's the bread, there's the wine, and there's the lamb. But in none of the reports in the New Testament do you hear of there being lamb on the table. <laughs> there was no lamb on the table because the lamb was at the table, right? <laughs> Point is, is when John the Baptist looks up and sees Jesus, he says, Behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the, wor sin of the world. He gets it. He realizes that his firstborn is not going to be saved by little soft, fluffy lambs. What he's saying is it's going to be because of his son. Because God is looking at Abraham and saying, Look, Abraham, I'm going to climb a mountain with my son too. And I'm going to lay the wood on him. But you know what? There's not going to be an angel to stay my hand. Because he in the end is going to die. He is going to pay the price for his father's silence. Jesus dies at twilight, just as the lamb would have been getting slain in the temple that very evening. What's the point? The point for us this morning is we have come to the micro center of the gospel in the blood of the lamb. You know, a number of years ago, I, I read about a, a Christian denomination who was voting on the songs that would appear in the next edition uh, of their hymnal. And they had decided to remove and exclude uh, the Getty hymn in Christ alone from the new edition. Why? Because of this verse. Till on that cross, as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. For every sin on him was laid here in the death of Christ. I live. 
The chairperson of the committee said that the popular hymn mistakenly expressed the view that the cross is primarily about God's need to assuage God's anger. You hear what they're saying? This idea is getting more and more offensive to this generation. But see, my premise this morning is, is if you lose this, you've lost the essence of the gospel. And here's the reason why. Because I think we know we're guilty. I think there is a sense in which, to the, even to this generation, we know that our sin is not benign. And there is a debt that's been created. And therefore, we, have real, we realize that we have engaged in a systematic destruction of someone else's property, namely God's and namely the human race. Look, for that reason this morning, we, we, there's a sentence hanging over all of our heads, the Bible says. What are you going to do with that? That's worth asking. <laughs> what, what are you going to do with that? How will you respond to that? Because the Bible's answer is simply to cling to Christ, and it's pictured for us right here. To come forward, to, have to, to receive it, to feed on Him, to take the Lord's Supper, and to realize that He's the only answer we ever need. Do you know that? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, would you teach it to us? Even, Father, as we go to the table, even now, would you draw near to us and let us see in a way in which we, we might not have been able to see before? Father, maybe even, just maybe, for the first time, you might draw someone to yourself that they might see for the first time exactly what it means for you to be the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Would you do that? We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.